for us and help you come to know Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with him and to grow in your Christ-likeness so that you become Christ-centred. Our desire is that every single person who comes to this church would thrive through having a relationship with Jesus Christ. We want this church to be a community where you can flourish and the only way to flourish is through knowing Jesus. So if you're here today, we want to welcome you and we want to encourage you to look to Jesus this morning. Now, how on the journey of coming from someone who is far from God to become someone who's thriving in Christ right over here, what, what values do we have, has, have as a church this morning? And if you're here new or if you've been here for a while, we just wanted to take this moment this morning to let you know the values that we will not violate as we as a church seek to help people grow in Christ. So in these next few moments, I wanted to check out this uh, presentation of our church values. Let's watch that together. God, we thank you for this morning for this time when we can gather together and to be reminded that, God, you have sent your son Jesus into this world and you have sent your son to die on a cross that we might be forgiven of our sin and made right with you. God, we thank you that we are those who have turned from our sin, that we've repented and that we've come to put our faith and trust in your son Jesus who died and has risen again. And thank you, God, that this morning you live in us because Jesus lives. And God, we thank you for this church. It's not a building, it's the people. And as we sit next to one another and as we, uh, in a few moments, we'll share in communion, we're reminded that the thing that makes us a church is our faith in you. God, help us to be a church which continually lives under your authority and your lordship. God, help us to be devoted to your, to your word, to teaching it and to living it. And God, we pray that as we seek to worship and pray and serve and love and grow, and as we seek to continue to be people of integrity and to share the gospel with others and to be those who are welcoming new people, no matter what they've done. Lord, may we be a church that thrives. We pray that whether we go through difficult times or good times, uh, whether we uh, face the most incredible challenges or whether things seem to all fall into place, that we would be looking to you, Lord Jesus, in every moment. So God, thank you. Thank you for this time to be together today, to encourage one another to open your word. And God, we just want to thank you so much for this. Lord, we want to pray for uh, people in China today um, as that country is getting ready for the Olympics. Lord, we pray that this Olympics gathering would be a real time for China to um, hear more and more about who you are. We pray for people that are uh, sharing uh, your word through giving out Bibles and people that are witnessing at this time, that this would be a real effective time for people to come to know you. And we pray that the people of China would be 
the world would see some of the tragedies and things that have been happening in that country and that the world would be more aware and that China would be more accountable. Oh God, we thank you for your word as it transforms lives and we pray that more and more people would come to know you um, as a result of the Olympics being there and those sharing their faith. God, we thank you for this time. We love you and we love your word. And we pray that you'll speak to us this morning as we continue to give thanks for all that you've done on the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered, is God really in control? Is he really in control of my life? Is he really in control of this world? I wonder if anyone here today has ever really wondered that. I know for me, the question of, is God really in control? Can I really trust him with real concerns in my life? This has become more critical, even, can I say, caused me to wonder completely about the omnipotence of my God. That is, his all-powerful, all-sufficiency for my life in the midst of very real distress and confusion. When we get to that place, can we really trust that God is in control, that he is omnipotent, that he is trustworthy? You see, no one is exempt from the influences and the confusions and the disappointments of this world. I bet if we were really honest... And I asked you to just share some of your current concerns, whether they be financial, whether they be relational, whether they be identity issues or social concerns, state of health, mental or physical. I bet there'd be very few people in this room that is either not wrestling currently with something or is concerned about a family member that is. So, if we love God, can we really know whether he is really interested in the very real issues of our lives? Is he really in control when, when often life just seems so much to the contrary? I've been reading through the New Testament lately and without doubt I am overwhelmed as I've come to wrestle personally with this issue that there is a resounding yes to that question. Is God really in control? In the book of John, Jesus predicts his death to the very people who are closest to him on earth, the disciples, and they don't understand. Here they are, they'd lived with him, they'd shed life together with him, they held such high hopes for who Jesus was. They were starting to believe that, yes, he could be the one. He could be the one that could rescue them from Roman tyranny, from the tyranny of the law, he is the Messiah, they thought. And now he says, 
He's going away. And it's better. Such confusion. How could the one, the one that they have so much hope for, go away? And it could be better. And what does going away really mean? How could God, through Jesus, impart this to people that were left confused and searching? When we come to this table, we actually come to remember two things. Jesus going away. A euphemism euphemism for Jesus' horrible, dreadful, shocking criminal's death on a cross. The blood that is shed for us in place of us, in place of our sin. And his body, this bread which represents his body, which was given for us on that cross. How does this make sense? How could God be in control when in the midst of such despair and such uncertainty and sorrow, Jesus says, it is better. I am in control. But you see, the way he went also left no doubt that he was in control, that he was omnipotent, that he was God, that he was all-powerful and all-sufficient. You see, his death is just not the end. It's the main part of the story, but it's not the end. The final chapter is his resurrection You see, death could not hold him. The elements could not hold him. The sun stopped shining for three hours. The curtain of the temple broke in two. When all the people stood and saw what happened, they beat their breasts, John said, and went away. Were they convicted at that point that he truly was a God that was nailed? to the cross, a powerful man. And today, because of what Jesus did for us, the Bible says that same power, that same omnipotent, mighty God resides in us. The counsellor, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would take the disciples' grief and turn it into joy. The Holy Spirit would come and sanctify us. He will glorify us. He will empower us. He will guide us. He will protect us. He will unify us. He will love us. He will reveal things to us and give us what we pray for. This is all contained in the prayer of Jesus for his disciples before he said, I must go away. For those who love God, for those who put their trust, no matter what is currently happening in your life, with confidence, you can say, because of this, 
and this. It's ironic, it's a paradox. But because of this, which seemed to be a situation that was so out of control, we can say yes, that God surprisingly, incredulously is in control. It isn't the end of the story, Jesus' death. It's just the beginning. It's the final scene, his life, that that life now resides in us. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me. Oh, the glory and the power of our amazing, our wonderful, our omnipotent God who is trustworthy in all our lives. No matter what is happening in your life today, I want to say to you, it is because of this and because of this, you can trust that God is in control. You can trust that he has not abandoned us, that he had to go away. So he would leave his spirit to reside in us so that we can overcome this world. Imagine, imagine today through the remembrance of the power that was displayed on the cross at Calvary that we as people that love our Lord Jesus Christ could once again be convicted of his unlimited power within us. That's the message today as we come to communion, as you come to take this bread, eat it if you love Jesus, and as you do, reflect upon the cost of what he gave up for you, but also reflect upon the fact that it didn't end there, that he gave this so that you could thrive, so that you could have an overcoming spirit because of the God that is in control in your life despite your circumstances. Take that and eat that and know that no matter what. Believe it by faith. And then as you are handed the wine, which represents his blood, which has been shed for you, hold on to it. And together we will drink it in remembrance of what he did and what he continues to do in our lives. In Jesus' name. And Diane's going to come and pray for us now.
Well, I wonder if you agree with me that um, drastic times call for drastic measures. You know, when things go wrong, an urgent response is required. I remember hearing about uh, Hurricane Katrina and George Bush seeming to be inactive in his response to the tragedy that occurred and the uproar of the American people because the response that he had in their minds didn't fit the catastrophe. Drastic times call for drastic responses. I have a younger sister, Catherine, and she's just recently started work as a teacher's aide. And what her role is, is to stay with a grade five boy and not let him out of her sight. He has uh, behavioural problems that in the past has caused him to be really aggressive to two other kids in the school. And so the school have understood that drastic times call for drastic responses and have employed my sister to stay with him. You're probably getting a big picture of my sister as tough and mean. She's not like that at all. But she has to stay with him all the time. It's true. Uh, just to sit back uh, in the midst of a tragedy, in the midst of unfolding drama, and to just act as though nothing really matters is a wrong approach. And when there's things going wrong in your life, when there's things going wrong in my life, an appropriate response is one of urgency when things are in trouble. And Paul knew this in his life. He'd grown up trained as a Pharisee, someone who was an expert in the Jewish law and was devoting himself fully to the law and learning it and acting out it appropriately. When all of the sudden he started to hear about Christians, people who followed Jesus, drastic times called for drastic responses, and Paul uh, would stop at nothing to persecute these Christians. He gained permission to arrest them and to throw them into prison. And when one of the early Christians, Stephen, was testifying, Paul, Saul, as he was called, took the coats while people stoned Stephen. Drastic times call for drastic response. And so Paul was giving himself wholeheartedly to the stamping out of the Christian faith. But one day while Saul was on his way to Damascus on the road, all of a sudden a, a bright light hid him and blinded him. And he heard a voice and he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was a defining moment in Paul's life. Saul became Paul now, someone who was given a call on the road to Damascus from the risen Lord Jesus to go and take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Drastic times call for drastic response. 
And God was not going to let his church be persecuted and was not going to let it be uh, attacked by Paul. And so he met him on the road to Damascus and his life was turned around. And Paul became one of the most incredible followers of Christ that has lived. He wrote much of the New Testament. Many of the letters that, are, that we have today come from his hand, his pen. And Paul, on his first missionary journey, ended up in many different places, but one of them was a place where Timothy came from, Lystra. And although it doesn't say it specifically, we can imagine that at that time, while Paul and Barnabas were travelling through the area where Timothy, young Timothy was living, he must have seen Paul. He must have witnessed what was going on at that time as they came through. He must have been intrigued and listened to what they were saying. And we can only imagine that he gave his heart to the Lord and became a follower of Jesus. In Acts 14, uh, what happened in Lystra is described. It says there in verse 9 that Paul uh, was was walking and he saw a man who was crippled from his feet. And Paul, as he was speaking, he looked directly at him and saw that this man had faith to be healed. And so he called out, stand up on your feet. And in that, the man began to get up and jump and walk. And the crowd were amazed, it says. And they were so amazed that they started to yell out, the gods have come down uh, to us in human form. And the crowd started to worship Paul and Barnabas. And when they suddenly realised what they were doing, Paul and Barnabas, they tore their clothes in grief, saying, we're not gods, we're only humans, but we come to tell you the good news, that the the people, the things that you're worshipping are worthless and you need to turn to the living God. And they shared all of this advice and maybe Timothy was listening and watching these events unfold. But quickly some people came, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over, we're told, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city. And we're told that the, the stoning was so severe that they thought that he was dead and they left Paul outside the city. The next verse, in verse 20 of Acts 14, is incredible. But the disciples, but after the disciples had, had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. Oh, drastic times call for drastic responses. And Paul so much believed in the gospel that even after preaching it and getting stoned and left for dead, he got up and went back into the city. 
And we can imagine that Timothy maybe looked at Paul and his example, a man that was badly stoned and, and heard the gospel and responded wholeheartedly to it. The book that we're just beginning now this series on is called One Timothy. And Timothy was a young man, much younger than Paul. And although Timothy is not mentioned in those chapters, this is where he probably first came to faith after hearing Paul's preaching and it stirring his heart. And Timothy was already had solid training in the scriptures. He'd grown up from the time right from when he was born with a mother who was a Jewish mother and a father who was Greek. But his mother had obviously taught him about the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And he'd grown up with all this training. And so when Paul came and shared the gospel, it all made sense to him. And he responded. By Paul's second missionary journey, Timothy had grown and become a hugely respected disciple of Jesus. Have a look, if you will, at Acts 16, just two verses on from Acts 14, when that happened, two chapters on from Acts 14. And here, just not long later, the second missionary journey of Paul, we read in the first chapters, uh, first verses of chapter 16, he came to Derby and then to Lystra, which was where Timothy was born, was from, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, so he was well spoken of Timothy. And Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So they circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. His commitment seen in these verses is that he was already a strong follower of Christ by the time Paul came on his second missionary journey. He'd grown to be respected by people and it was significant enough that Timothy would be willing to be circumcised so that the message, circumcision was very important for for Jewish people um, to be done, especially seeing his father was Greek. He, he didn't want anything to compromise the hearing of messages from others. So, so Timothy willingly undergoes this, which shows already his strong commitment to the gospel. And then the fact that this would have been known that his father was a Greek all around shows that Timothy was already well respected by this time. And then what follows is Timothy engaging with Paul in very significant ministry. Timothy was a great co-worker from this time on with Paul, the great apostle. He seems not to be as strong as Paul in his uh, personality. He seemed to struggle with a naturally kind of timid kind of character and a sensitivity to his youthfulness. But in spite of all this, 
Paul put great trust in Timothy and he gave him enormous responsibilities. And Timothy played an important role in uh, some of the churches, some very difficult churches. He entrusted Timothy with uh, the Corinthian, the church in Corinth, which shows how much he, he really um, trusted him. Maybe we could just turn to Philippians chapter uh, 2 and verse 20 together. Where Paul writes these words. Philippians chapter 2 and verse, why don't we start from 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he has a because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. What great things to say from Paul to Timothy. What great affirmation of this young man. And what a great testimony to his character and to the relationship that he and Paul have. So Timothy, this letter is addressed to him. And who does it come from? Well, it comes from Paul. Paul the Apostle is sending this letter to Timothy. And what was the kind of setting of the letter? Now, uh, I want you to notice that in drastic times, drastic responses are called. And Timothy, when he witnessed Paul's persecution and everything, gave his life to the Lord, he has now realised that he wants to be sharing the gospel. And so he has responded wholeheartedly in a you know, drastic way. He is serving God with all that he has. But how did this letter actually come about? What, would it, what was its setting? Well, it seemed that Paul wrote this letter in AD 64. Uh, and he wrote it as one of three pastoral epistles. There's one Timothy, two Timothy, and Titus, all in a row. And these letters are all together grouped to be called the pastoral epistles. That's because all of these letters are personal in nature and are written to Timothy and to Titus, who were leading churches at the time. And they're advice to these guys. It's, uh, the setting seems to be that Paul had been imprisoned in Rome in Acts 28. And soon after that, he was released and he went to Crete with Titus and probably with Timothy as well with him. And when they got there, they shared the gospel in many of the towns in Crete, but they also encountered some strong opposition, especially from uh, Jews who seemed to be taking a different um, tact to what the gospel was. People that had become Christians who were Jewish people but still saying that you needed to do some of the other things that you did before you became a Christian in order to be saved. And Paul, because of this, left Titus on the island of Crete. 
in order to regulate things and put the churches in order there. Meanwhile, Paul and Timothy kept going on their way to Macedonia. And they went there by way of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And when they went there and stopped over, what they found was a small disaster. Although uh, this church in Ephesus was one that Paul had spent more time ministering in than any other church, what seems to have happened now was false teachers were in there, in the church. And they were teaching things that were similar to the sort of uh, heresies that were found in, in Colossians. And also similar to the things that they just found in Crete as they'd been going through there. And these false teachers were undermining the church in Ephesus and it was a drastic time. It was a, a, a challenging situation. So Paul excommunicated two of the ringleaders right then and there. Uh, it seems these people, Hymenius and Alexander, are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 19 to 20. You might want to have 1 Timothy open now and let's have a look at that. 1 Timothy 19 to 20. In the midst of that, he's, he says there in, in 19 to 20, some have rejected the truth uh, that he's been talking about and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul's dealing drastic times, drastic measures, and what he's saying is there are some false teachers here and I want to excommunicate two right now. But he had to press on to Macedonia. And so he left Timothy in charge of things at Ephesus to stem the tide. And on his arrival in Macedonia, he, he wrote letters to both Timothy and to Titus. Uh, he wrote them to Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete. And he was writing them to help them stem the tide of false teaching in their churches. Now, Timothy was to remain in Ephesus, but what would happen would be that Titus would be replaced by um, Armatus, it seems. And he was to, and, and, and Titus was to join Paul and come and meet with him later on. And it seems that eventually Paul would be brought back to Rome and where he would have another preliminary hearing or tribunal that would happen later on, and then he would be handed over for a full trial. And it seems that during this time, he felt left alone, Paul did in Rome. He felt abandoned. And uh, Onesiphus came from Ephesus, and he came to Paul in Rome, and he sought him out, and he ministered to his needs, and he informed him of what was going on back in Ephesus with Timothy and the church there. And apparently, things had, had continued to disintegrate. So what Paul did in this time was that he wrote another letter to Timothy, to, to, the, to Timothy. And he sent that with him, urging loyalty to himself and his gospel and requesting, finally, that 
Timothy should drop everything and make his way to Rome before winter. So what happens here is that's how the pastoral epistles came about. Letters from Paul, first two, in Macedonia, to Timothy, who was back in Ephesus, and to then uh, Titus, who was in Crete, and then Paul returned back to Rome and was awaiting trial and not long later, it seems, would be uh, executed. But before that time, he wrote to, to Timothy, which make up the pastoral epistles. Drastic times call for drastic measures. And these, these guys had come and seen false teaching amongst the churches and they were responding now Paul was responding with these letters. You know, many people think the pastoral epistles are ones where an ageing Paul sits down with all his wisdom after all so many years and just gives out like the gems of his learnings to the younger Timothy who laps them up as his mentor. And it's kind of like, you know, um, at the end of your life, blessing those around you. Nothing could be further from the truth the pastoral epistles of Paul responding to drastic times and writing how Timothy and the church in Ephesus should act. So, so, so why was it written? What was its purpose? I think, first of all, the, as you read this letter and as we go through it together, we're going to find that he was writing, Paul was writing to Timothy and he was writing to him to develop the charge to that he had given to his younger assistant to say, keep on, keep strong. Look what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. As I urged you when I went, to Mas- went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men. You know, he's saying, uh, come on, stand firm, be strong, Timothy. Look what he says in verse 18 of chapter 1. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight. He's giving a charge to Timothy. That's the first thing he's doing. You know, and he's, the, the Timothy, he's saying, preach sound doctrine. Preach healthy doctrine. Stick to the truth in these drastic times. Look what he says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 15 and 16. He says to Timothy, you know, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Drastic times, Timothy, stick to the truth. Be diligent in these matters. Teach them well because it's difficult, difficult times. The second thing calling him to the charge, was to attack. Paul was wanting to really refute false teachings. He was saying to Timothy, I want you to address the false teachings and I want you to, to, to take those people head on. And false teachings, it seems, in, in 1 Timothy, was not from outsiders. You know, there are, there are other books of the Bible, letters that are written to people who were facing the threat of false teachers that were from outside the church, like uh, Galatians and, and Corinthians. But here, it's more drastic. It seems that the matter is, is more serious and urgent because it seems that the church was being led astray by some of its own elders. I mean, right there in the church, it seems that there were elders 
who were leading uh, the, the rest of the people astray. The reason this is most likely is that um, they were teachers. Look what it says in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. Again, it says, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine. So there were teachers within the church that were teaching false doctrines. And he's saying, I want you to stand up strong against those. Um, a lot of the letter is written and addressed to people uh, to, who would be leaders in the church based on uh, explaining what character, what qualifications and the kind of discipline that these church leaders would have. And much of what is taught in these passages uh, about overseers, elders, deacons in the passage in 1 Timothy is actually taught in such a way that it's refuting some of the claims of the false teachers that they were saying and much of what it is standing against the errors of the false teachers. False teaching also seems to have obviously found a really fruitful um, response from women. And apparently younger widows were those that were being most, you know, led astray and taken in by false teachers. Uh, they'd open up their homes to them. And some of them were even spreading the false teachings themselves. Look, let's look over in 2 uh, Timothy verses 3 and 6 to 9, just to see some of this that had been happening. Um, describing the false teachers, this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 6 to 9. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as James and Jumbres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of deprived minds who, as far as the truth is concerned, are rejected. They will not get very far because, as is in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So you can see these are the kind of people that are coming into women's homes, gaining control over weak-willed women and leading them astray. Look too, uh, together at 1 Timothy 2, 19 to 15. There's real things that are addressed here specifically to women and how they should act. And this seems to be in the context of, of, of wanting to ensure that women act rightly in this drastic environment. It talks about how they should dress, how they should learn, um, and it talks in there directly about things to do with women. Look at over chapter 5 as well and verses uh, 11 to 15. Chapter 5 and verses 11 to 15. Here it says, As for younger women, do not put them on such a list, for, with their, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken the first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. I, so I counsel younger women to marry and to have children, to, mar to manage their homes and to, to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have already turned away to follow Satan. So you can see the women are being led astray, particularly 
by this false teaching that is happening as well. So first of all, Paul's writing to urge Timothy to rise to the challenge, to be strong in the midst of this drastic situation. Be strong, Timothy. Stick to the truth. Preach the gospel. Second thing he's saying is you've got to refute the false teachings that are happening in this time. Don't let the false teachers run astray. And third thing he's saying is he's going to instruct in light of this, Paul is, he's going to instruct Timothy and the church in Ephesus on how to conduct themselves in God's household because this is very important in the midst of this environment. If, if in the midst of false teaching, people are living the wrong way, Paul is going to explain to them how to do that. And so there's strong imperative that Paul gives on how people should act in worship, how church leadership should function and how uh, Timothy should pastor and you know, be personally disciplined in his, his walk and how the church should care for the poor and look after them. And this was all advice given not from an ageing Paul who was sitting back relaxed on a beach somewhere with a you know, nice cool drink, but someone who was coming to the end of his time and was aching about the things that were happening in the church in Ephesus. Mandy and I arrived at our first appointment um, after we, as a sole pastor. I had grown up in our ch- church at uh, Baronia since the time I was five years old and I'd started being an associate pastor at Baronia Baptist and then felt really strongly a call to ordination. And so we went and left and went to our first church. And I can remember when I arrived at the church and began to set up uh, some of my books and, and look for the place where my office would be, I met a man there, one of the people that were there, who uh, said to me, this is where your office is going to be. I said, oh, right, okay. And then he said, and by the way, you know, um, staff meetings, 10 o'clock. And I sort of was starting to get a bit alarmed. You know, like this guy thought that he could tell me where my office was going to be, what time staff meeting was happening. And so I inquired a little bit more and found that the week before I had come to the church, coming as the sole pastor, the church had appointed someone two days a week for pastoral care for the next three years. And I hadn't known anything about it. So I said to this guy, uh, after he sort of explained when, where am I, I should have my office and where I should be meeting, I said, how do you see our relationship together? And he said, well, I'm ordained. You're not. <laughs> he said, I'm quite experienced. I've been in pastoral ministry for a long time. You're just beginning, you know, haven't finished your studies yet. And he said, you know, um, I'm on two days a week, but because of my ordination and my training and experience, even though you're four days a week, we're a team. We're equal. I said, wow, desperate times (laughs) call for (laughs) drastic measures. So I just said, okay, that's fine. No worries. If if that's the case, that would be no worries but I just need to talk to the diaconate. So I called up the diaconate and within the you know, matter of 48 hours, we were all gathering together around a table and you know, I just said, you know, um, 
I believe in teamwork and I'm, I'm really good on this, but how do you see this situation? I re really need to know how you see this because, you know, we understood we are coming as the sole pastor and I needed to have experience leading a church. How do you see that? And, you know, this man said, well, you know, we're a team. We all work together, equal shared. And I sort of said, you know, I know about teams, Paul and Timothy, but there's always someone who was the captain and had the ultimate responsibility and if you could just let me know that would be fine and the deacons all said Jonathan you are the captain you're the one who's leading the team and they all went round and this man said oh, oh well I didn't quite know that and they all agreed Jonathan's the captain and from that moment on things started to go much more smoothly drastic times call for drastic measures. I didn't then have to get my authority from anywhere. We all just knew it, and then I didn't have to fight for it anymore. But in those couple of days at the start, I had to find out who they wanted to lead the church in that time. And we worked as a team from them on, just with me as the leader, and it seemed to go really well together. I think when Paul was writing to this church, it was very different to that situation. This man was not teaching false teaching in the church. Uh, but in Paul's situation, it was worse and more urgent because those that were in some, some of those in leadership were teaching false doctrine. So this is how Paul begins a letter to Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus. He writes like this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things that the church in Ephesus needed to know and needed to know it clearly was where authority came from within their church setting. And all of you gathered today, each one of you, needs to know where authority in your life comes from. Who do you trust where does truth come from in your life? Our church needs to know this as well. And Paul writes to them and he says this, Paul, an apostle, a sent one, one sent from God to speak on behalf of God, one who was met, has met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. I am an apostle. And just so you didn't get the authority that he's speaking with, he says, by the command of God. By the command of God. He's saying so clearly to Timothy and the rest of the church that would read this letter, Paul's authority came from God. Listen to him. Don't listen to the false teachers. Listen to Paul and his teaching. And then he says this, to Timothy, my true son. 
in the faith. What he's saying is, don't just, if, if you listen to Timothy, you're listening to me and you're listening to God's words because Timothy is my true son in the faith. We are one. And those that were hearing and reading the message would have known, ooh, Timothy has Paul's blessing and Paul's authority and we need to hear from him and we need to listen to him and the false teachers that are going to be addressed in this letter and all the things that we're facing in this situation if we keep our eyes fixed on those who have God's authority in this place. We'll thrive in challenging times. Church, you don't need to look to my authority. Actually, the Bible is our authority and God is our authority. And we put our trust in his word and we look to that to guide us. I just want to say, if you're in drastic times at the moment, if there's sin in your life, if you are facing a challenge in your holiness and way of living that is putting you off track and making you believe things that don't match up with God's word. I want to ask you, where's your authority coming from? Where are you going to put your faith? Because the only authority is that that comes from God and his word. If you are watching shows like Oprah and being recommended her books about new earths and new religions that are kind of new agey that will help you out in your life. I want to ask you, where does your authority come from? Don't look to other places for your spiritual nurture. Look to God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't stray and be led astray from false teachers. If you have friends who have uh, undermine Christian values or believe in other uh, faiths that are totally opposed to the Christian faith, like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or or people who are following Islam or other things that, that just contradict what Jesus himself said, question is, are you going to take a stand? Are you going to live according to God's word and follow him? Today, church, there are so many things calling out for our hearts and our attentions. And we will be doing good as we look through 1 Timothy to take a strong stand in our life for Jesus, just like Timothy did, just like Paul did, just like the church in Ephesus had to do. Uh, to stand strong for Jesus, to confront false teaching and untruths that become part of our lives and to live for him no matter what the cost. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this church. Thank you that we don't have false teachers amongst our elders. God, we thank you that Uh, We're not in a situation where untruth is being spoken all around in our church. Oh, but God, we just need to turn on our TVs or to read the most hottest selling books today to realise that untruth 
is all around us. Lord, we want to come out and be strong for you. We want to say that we will be those that stand firm, that speak the truth and that live for your word and your truth in our lives. God, help us as we look through 1 Timothy to understand what you're saying to them and then to understand what you're saying to us. God, this morning, we give you our lives afresh today. We trust in you, mighty God. And wherever we go and whatever we do, we want to live for you. Help us do that because drastic times call for drastic responses. And so we trust in you, Jesus. Amen.